Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. On the phone, I have Jeffrey Nito. He's a Canadian-Brazilian author who lives in Ottawa. Today, we're going to talk about his debut novel, A Century of Promises. Hey, welcome to the show, Jeffrey. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, you've written a book which is focusing on 100 years in El Salvador, but you've written it as a fictional novel based on true events. What was your decision in the making of this book and not simply writing a nonfiction book? It, it first started off as a nonfiction adventure. So, you know, uh, about a family in El Salvador and the ups and downs. And I wanted to mimic the, the very famous 100 Years of Solitude. But okay. as, as, the more I started to, to do my research, the more I started to learn about the country, you know, through, you know, through people uh, such as my, my wife and, and her family, the more I, I started to, to realize that there's a, a broader story here that should be told and that hasn't been uh, told to uh, a wider audience. And so I decided to, you know, combine, you know, the, the true stories of, of people that have uh, grown up in, in, in El Salvador and then have made their way to Canada and, and elsewhere. Uh, but also staying true to the facts of the country and and also telling it in a way that's amusing, entertaining, and that allows people to to really uh, gain a, a better insight of the countries and, uh, and the changes that, that were taking place during these times. For sure. I always enjoy learning about something in a, in a more accessible way than just looking at statistics because what you're doing Same is... Here. You're humanizing the struggle. You're humanizing the people when you when you tell it in stories. Now let's let's get into the novel. Um, one of your main characters, lawyer Juan Alonso Hernandez, he comes to El Salvador in 1917. Um, he comes into conflict as a lawyer uh, defending plantation workers. And I was in El Salvador in 2014, and I my first impression was, wow, this country is very different. It's very agriculturally based. And you see people walking around with machetes, and there's a lot of agriculture going on all over. I remember seeing people riding on the back of sugarcane trucks and, and the coffee plantations. Can you talk a little bit about how the geography of El Salvador has shaped the people and the economy of that place? Absolutely. It's, it, it was really interesting because, you know, it's, it's a country that's surrounded and that's made up of volcanoes. So wherever you go, there's uh, a different type of volcano, and so the geography has had a huge impact on on the economy. So during that, like uh, during that time, the the early uh, uh, 1900s, uh, that was the beginning of the transformation from agricultural land uh, to co mass coffee production. You started to see uh, landowners acquire a large percentage of the country's land. Um, you started to see a concentration of wealth and power and influence all all starting to happen around one um, one commodity. And the reason why um, uh, this is so important uh, from a geography perspective is because uh, the best coffee plantations are those, um, you know, are those at a higher altitude and the soil from the 
from uh, volcanoes uh, help uh, produce higher quality uh, coffee. Mm-hmm. And so when that, when that was met with global demand, uh, you just saw a huge amount of export uh, happening. And because of that, uh, you started to, to get the have-nots and the haves. And that concentration of power also led to control of, of the institutions, of the, of the public institutions. Of, uh, it started to give those in power more political uh, wealth and, and authority. And, you know, that was the, the beginning of decades and decades of, um, of a political struggle between those uh, with nothing and those who were trying to, to keep and maintain their power. And so that was the, the one of the reasons why I, I focused and, and wanted to start the, the wanted to start the story at that particular po- uh, moment, because it was the perfect overlap between uh, geography and uh, political advancement. Listening to the stories, uh, there was a seething resentment about foreign ownership and about the the giant wealth inequality. Uh, many Salvadorian peasants working on the plantations, of course, couldn't afford to even have coffee. So uh, maybe touch a little bit about as how as time went on, the people started to uh, organize around more rights and, and more equity within this agricultural economy. Like in um, every social movement, uh, the, the organization always started off with a sense and an experience of social injustice. And so because everyone, regardless of, of where they live, regardless of the type of, of, uh, of, of work that they were doing, uh, they identified with a certain class and they started to come together. And then you had individuals that uh, were questioning the social status, were, were asking for uh, more food, better, better wages. Uh, they were asking for uh, more opportunities, not uh, for themselves, but also for their families and, and, and for the future generation. And they could continuously see that, you know, uh, with all this money, with all this work, production that was happening uh there was very little that was falling uh literally uh onto their plates and so you started to you started to have uh different types of movements shaping up in uh in different parts of rural El Salvador and um this was the beginning of of a lefties movement it was very um it was very socialist in nature and then over time it started to get different shades of it but um, you know, at the onset, it, w- it was it was really about how could we guarantee a better future, a better have a better quality of life uh, for us and for our families, and and it was a very you know on the ground guerrilla type of of movement and and challenging uh, the current authorities. Uh, so that's that, that that's really what I try to capture in the book. Okay. Um, and and you know and highlight how. You know, it was taking place, you know, on farms. It was taking place, you know, on, on bar at bars. In tr- you know, when when families would go to masses, when they would gather in the square, all of these things culminated into an uprising that that uh, took place in the in the early 30s. That really, really, until this day, it, it still leaves a very very ugly stain on the country, and it's something that they still talk about, and they're still healing from. Many of the countries of Latin America, as you know, and, and also Brazil, where you're from, were victims of um, 
dictatorship and dirty wars of the 80s where resources were coveted and mass repression visited the people there. Uh, I think in the West we kind of live in a bubble and um, speak about uh, the family, the Castaneda family that you write about uh, as I guess as a typical Salvadorian family, how they experienced these periods in the generations and, and how this uh, impacted and how they re responded. Yeah, so I, I try to have a balance there. I, I didn't want the book to be one-sided where, you know, it's just one family, you know, uh, you know, suffering for over 100 years. Uh, I wanted to show the rise of this family and also keep, keep truth to the the actual uh, uh, stories of, of, you know, the actual personal stories that I was hearing from individuals and what I was finding, uh, what I was reading about during my research. And so, you have that a point of view from uh, the Castaneda family of, uh, you know, someone that arrives in San Salvador because they were studying abroad. They see this this social injustice happening. They see landowners um, taking over patches and uh, of land and forcing, uh, uh, you know, peasants and farmers out of their land and, and giving them nothing in exchange for all that. Um, and so... On the other side of that, you also had a very organized uh, state with not only political authority um, and capitalists, but you also had uh, the military might, the, 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 the police that were organized and that would enforce the rule of law. Um, and the rule of law was something that it was something that benefited only one class. It wasn't something that was equal. Um, and so I also put that perspective into the story by frame by dividing the family up and introducing those conflicts of you know of brothers um being on opposite side of the laws of mothers um uh, you know uh, trying to to have a relationship with their daughters and, and their sons but their view of the world is is something in complete contrast to what they believe in in doing that you get to see both sides of the story and it's not so much that i'm trying to you know, get the reader to sympathize with, you know, those that were, you know, punishing the vast majority of the people. But I think that if you want to understand and get a, a, a comprehensive understanding of, of the story of, of El Salvador, you have to look at it from multiple perspectives. And, and that's what I tried to do that, uh, to do in this book through uh, the eyes of the Castaneda family. In the 80s, as you know, there was many massacres. There was many repression and disappearance of union leaders. So how do you square this idea that, um, I guess, the government or the the dictatorship had um, a kind of a point of view on that side? Like, I'm, I'm having trouble kind of dotting that and dotting that on. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's, it's to show how the pervasive, the, 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 the messaging and of the of the state was of the military was mm -hmm. um, how you could take someone that you know really had a strong idea of social justice and you put them in an environment uh, filled with propaganda um, and and you tell them that you know this is how the world is structured this is what these other you know rebels are trying to do they're trying to destroy uh, destroy the, the social order the status quo right. Um, and, and you really get this, you know, a massive brainwashing across the population. And, and, you, and you see that in, you know, in all of, 
in, in any totalitarian um, dictator regimes. And, and that what was really taking place here in the 80s in El Salvador uh, and what the state was, was trying to do to the people. And so that's why, you know, the resistance started to increase more and more. You, that's why you started to get uh, better organizations of, of those on the left. Uh, the guerrilla groups really, you know, uh, taking the fight to, uh, um, you know, the mountains and, and organizing themselves and just getting better organized. Um, but... Uh, and so the story really, really shows how someone who wasn't originally like like that, uh, you know, they come from a humble beginnings, but how different choices um, in their life had led them to this particular position. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, they learned they learned their their lesson, and um, you got to see that transformation of the character. You got to see that transformation of the family, and um, and you know, it's a you know, I found it, and what people have told me, it has been a very, um, you know, eye-opening experience because, you know, I, at the end of the day, you know, we're all born good, but it's our environment that makes us behave and act in a way that that many would would see as 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 uh, morally unjust, and, uh, and and in a way that also causes physical damage and physical pain to others, and I think. The story that that, that tells that that story of how you know someone that you know has a lot of good intention um, uh, could be you know uh, coerced and brainwashed uh, by the state, by political authorities, by ideas, uh, and end up causing you know more harm than good. And so I I, I think uh, you know there's a lot of stories about that uh, in the book and facts as well uh, that capture that. For sure, um, there we I guess we underestimate the absolute power of the state, and we we like to think that the people in charge are good people. I mean, I, I would imagine to this day in the United States, there's people who still believe that we were just caring about democracy in Afghanistan and the Middle East, and we want to spread. And exactly. I remember the time um, in the '80s where. You would before the internet. You talk to people and say, "Oh, they're that's they're fighting off the communists. They're just taking care of these evil communists." Which and and people would really go for that. I think what opened a lot of eyes was the movie Romero, where uh, based on the story of uh, the bishop Romero for the Catholic Church, he was speaking about injustice and was actually murdered by death squads and some and some U.S. nuns, which started waking people up. So I guess we don't want to underestimate the power of the state and the power to manipulate. The narrative in, in in conflict is what we're seeing every day uh, when we when we turn on the news. Talk about the diaspora because El Salvador is one of the countries that is has one of the largest diaspora. Many many people. I think there's more people living outside El Salvador than actually stayed. So, do you want to touch on that and how that affects the culture? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're and you're absolutely right. Right. There's more people living abroad than in El Salvador. Um, something along the lines of, of 30% of El Salvador's GDP is based on remittances, so money uh, from Salvadorans living abroad, sending, sending it back to the country. Um, so a big chunk of El Salvador's identity, uh, both at the individual level, but also at the national level as well, is on this idea that we, we, we need to create a life um, outside of our country. And then give uh, money, give knowledge, give expertise back at some capacity. Mm-hmm. And so, 
um, it's it, it's it robs the the human capital of the country when you have decades and decades of people fleeing the country. And I think every Salvadorian that you meet, they all have a story of you know either it's them or it's the relative or it's a friend of you know uh, of, li- of moving abroad, um, going through that struggle of being an immigrant, and that's something that the book captures as well. Near the end of the book, there, you know, um, Canada played an important role during the during the El Salvador Civil War in um, in uh, accepting um, refugees from El Salvador, and so that 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 story and history is captured um, in in the book as well. And we we still see that today in Canada when you speak to uh, someone that. Uh, is Salvadoran, and they they talk about how they had to flee the country, um, and how they came to Canada, and Canada welcomed them. But then there were there was a lot of challenges once you arrive here, and um, and you're trying to you know raise raise a family, you're trying to work, you don't speak the language, the weather is very different, mm-hmm. the people are different, um, and that's a challenge not only particular to Salvadorans but to any. Um, any immigrant and any newcomer in Canada. And so I, I think that's why the book is not just about El Salvador, but it's about anyone who needs to leave their country um, uh, to come to a different country to um, uh, to experience a, a better life. For sure. Nobody wants to come and live in Winnipeg when they're in El Salvador, and this is a big, <laughs> exactly. and this is a big problem, I'm telling you. Also, um, there's a place in Vancouver here that a lot of Chilean uh, refugees came to can you speak to the resilience like when i was in el salvador the people were so friendly and nice but they were tough and resilience and and wonderful so can you speak a little bit about kind of the resilience uh to have having experienced this kind of multi-generational trauma and and then to just still be doing it to still be there and still be building a better life i think that uh it just speaks to the Salvadoran people when uh decades after decades of oppression of little hope um, you know, the, the, the title of the book is called The Century of Promises because over a century it's been one promise after another that, you know, the country will get better. And, and you know, that in large part hasn't really happened uh, until, you know, you could argue until recently. But the, the resilience of the Salvadoran people, it's the same type of resilience that you see with Chileans, Argentinians, Venezuelans, Brazilians. Um, and it's that ability that, I need to provide for my family. I need to have a better quality of life uh, for myself, for my kids. I have to give them more opportunities. And regardless of the obstacle, regardless of the setback, uh, it's this ability to persevere, it's this ability to, to hope and to uh, continue fighting for something that you believe in. And you see the manifestation of that, you know, and young people taking up arms to fight against the government. You see the manifestation of that in, in something as simple as, you know, um, starting starting a business, right? But also the difficulties that, that comes with that, of being a, be, you know, having to provide and also just waking up in the morning and going to work, you know, and, and doing the grunt work that no one wants to do. And I think you see that on a, on a day-to-day basis. It's not something that that just happens and disappears, but it's something that's ingrained in you. And, and, you know, I see that every time I talk to Salvadoran people and they, and they share their, their, the personal stories with me. 
Yeah, for sure. When I was there in 2014, there was a couple of American uh, citizens who were also Salvador, born in El Salvador who returned to open a hotel, open some businesses. So things, things are looking up a little bit. Um, my mother-in-law is always visiting there and she loves it there. So she says, everybody's happy now. I'm a little skeptical about everybody's happy now. But talk a little bit about... Uh, there's a new government there. I think there's a little bit of repression, but some people I talk to are happy that they're cracking down on gangs and such, but I'm a little skeptical about that. Yeah, I, I could like I could speak to um, my own experience. I've, I've been to, uh, to El Salvador several times in the past uh, five, six years, and I, I still remember the first time I went there, uh, there was this sense of, of unease wherever I went, um, uh, also, um, whenever I, you know, decided to take the bus, whenever I decided to go to a restaurant, go to the beach, it was always met with, uh, uh, be careful, don't, don't go uh, in that direction, make sure, you know, you're home by this time, don't venture off to that neighborhood. Um, and there was a lot of closed shops as well, right? People just seemed very hopeless. They, uh, the conversations around, uh, around the table was always centered around um, where can I go? Should I go to the U.S.? Should I go to Canada? Should I go to the Europe? It was you still had this the sense that I have to leave this country uh, if I want to have an opportunity. You know, fast forward five or six years, you know, regardless of you know the criticism that the, that the current government is getting and the politics, uh, but just on the ground when I go when when I go back there, um, it's it's a different environment. Uh, the conversation now is how do I build something for, for me and my family here in El Salvador? How do I open up a business? There's a, there's a new hotel. You should go check it out. Um, so there is a, a little bit more confidence. The security is definitely back. Um, uh, the sense of tranquility of hope, it, it, it's definitely back in the country. The question is, um, you know, is the current approach sustainable and will it last? I think only, only time will tell. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, you could really see a big transformation in the country from, you know, six, seven years to now. When you speak to people, uh, not many people who don't have a direct contact, they really think about El Salvador. It doesn't cross the radar. It doesn't hit the news very often. From your research, from writing this book, what do you think is the largest or the biggest misconception people might have about El Salvador? I think the biggest uh, miscon uh, misconception um, is really that you know it's uh, there's nothing there but volcanoes and and gangs and uh, and I, honestly like up to a certain point that was true that was true but um, there's just so much more there there's um, all sorts of, of things happening um, in terms of tourism uh, more people are, are going to the country their, you know, investments are is flowing in, into the country as well. Um, and that, and, and it's starting to, to change. I also think that El Salvador is a bit overshadowed, uh, overshadowed by Mexico, Guatemala, the bigger Central American countries. And, and so it's, it has had a hard time to find its own identity and personality. Um, and so that, that's something that it's struggling, that it has struggled with in the past. And, Right now, you're starting to see um, a different El Salvador. It's still a very, it's still a very young country, and the more it starts to, you know, find itself, the more it starts to promote 
um, you know, all the good that it has. Uh, the more we could see AL Salvador that has more personality and has more to offer. For sure. I was really uh, nervous to go down myself. And when I got there, the people were wonderful and accommodating, and I never felt uh, out of place. I, I felt really good there. Um, how can... How can people access your book or um, review your book? Great question. Uh, so my book could be uh, easily found on Amazon, um, across all Amazon web website, U.S. and Canada. It's also available uh, if you're in the U.S. on in Barnes and Noble, and if you're in Canada in chapters. Um, and uh, my email is a century of promises novel at gmail.com. So if there's any question. Um, uh, if you want to learn more about the book or just get in touch with me, please feel free to reach out. Okay, fabulous. Well, thanks for taking a few minutes this afternoon. I'm really happy you're um, taking time to examine uh, and do your research because I think it gives other people an opportunity to actually dig in there and, and find out for themselves. So thanks again for doing this. Uh, thank you for having me. We're time with first song, so let's pay baby. Que han caído los esquemas de mi vida Ahora que todo era perfecto Y algo más que eso Me sorbita el seso y me desciende el peso De este cuerpecito mío Que se ha convertido en río De este cuerpecito mío Que se ha convertido en río Me cuesta abrir los ojos y lo hago poco a poco, no sé a qué aún te encuentres cerca Me guardo tu recuerdo como el mejor secreto Qué dulce fue tenerte dentro Hay un trozo de luz en esta oscuridad para prestarme calma El tiempo todo calma La tempestad y la calma El tiempo todo calma La tempestad y la calma Siempre me quedará la voz suave del mar Volver a respirar la lluvia que caerá Sobre este cuerpo y mojará la flor que crece en mí
Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.